0: This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, it's not exactly the setup tune we had in the last series, but it, uh, It will work. It will work. Uh, Good morning. It's so good to see you guys uh, this morning. Uh, Week two of a series that we're just calling It's All About the Gospel. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, for those of you who want to follow along in your Bible or on your mobile device, uh, we'll get there uh, in a few minutes. I just wanted to uh, remind you of a few things. Bob Baldwin, I know many of you knew. I did not have the Pleasure of getting to meet him, uh, but Bob passed away this last week and was a longtime fruitful, gracious member of Lost Mountain Baptist Church, and uh, had his they had his funeral here on Saturday, yesterday. I was in uh, Birmingham all day with J.C. at a preview day at Sanford, so was not able to be here and attend, but I know some of you did, and I would just ask you to continue to be praying for uh, Patricia and for that Baldwin family as they uh, grieve his loss and celebrate the life that, uh, by the grace of God, he lived in Christ. I also want to say thank you so much to just uh, so many of you who sent cards to us and flowers to Uh, Sharon's uh, mom's house and uh, for the memorial service, uh, the Hollies and Jake, I know representing the church uh, writ large, actually flew out to Lubbock uh, and joined us for the service for Sharon's dad. Um, It's always uh, an interesting thing, a time of both uh, grief and reflection as you walk through the death of a family member. But it was uh, fun for our kids to get to see uh, the church doing what the church does so well. And, uh, we came back and, uh, some of our, you know, there, there were some meals that were ready for us to eat in the fridge. And I think those that prepared those and brought them had mercy on us and actually cleaned up some of the first floor of our house. I know they cleaned up. It might've been to have mercy on us. It might've been because they couldn't take it, um, as they were putting, but Sharon had been gone for several days by the time I loaded up the kids and drove uh, back to far West Texas and Lubbock. So, uh, we were leaving hot, so to speak, and there was stuff all over, the first floor, but it was fun for us to get to to say to the kids, this is the church, guys. This is part of what it means to be the, the people of God and part of what it means to be followers of Jesus and for them to see that in action uh, for us as a family on the receiving end. Um, third thing I would just want to uh, make you aware of, not... Uh, not on that end of life, but on the, the other end. Tori did have her baby, I guess she and John's baby, on Thursday evening. Uh, Lennon Grace was born at 7.33. And I don't know what took Tori so long, because she went to the hospital like mid-morning. So, but 7.33, Lennon Grace was born, eight pounds, 14 ounces, 21 inches for you ladies that that means something to. Um, I was hoping for a 15-pound, a, a 24-ouncer, Uh, or at least 24-incher. I wanted Tori to have bragging rights, Um, maybe make the local news, but it was not to be. Eight pounds, 14 ounces, 21 inches, but so excited for them. Um, Please be praying for them as God brings them to mind. Some of you will know what Sharon and I know all too well, that Um, When you bring a newborn into the house and you have one still in diapers and another one who still is not independent, the the next few months and year is sort of a dark blur. I think it's the grace of God that you look back and you can't remember much from the early years. Your mind has blotted those dark days out, Uh, but be praying for them as they adjust uh, to Lennon coming home and being a new family in many senses. Uh, while, we were, while we were attending to Sharon's dad's service and spending time with her family, uh, her aunt and uncle were staying there at the house and some cousins had come in. And one of her adult cousins asked me, uh, and her uncle chimed in too, very curious, said, hey, what are you seeing? They're very active in their church in Sherman, Texas, north of Dallas. And said, hey, what are you seeing in, in your church and kind of in churches across the United States um, as a result of COVID-19, the pandemic, how are you seeing that affect the church? And we talked some uh, about many of the different ways that we're, we're seeing it affect, the, the largest of which, especially for urban, metro, and suburban churches, uh, the vast majority have seen uh, quite a substantial decline in attendance from what they had in the pre-COVID year or two to now. Uh, almost all have declined uh, 50 to 60 percent. Well, they're back up to about 50 to 60 percent of where they were before. Um, and Sharon's uncle asked me, he said, w- w- you know, why do you think that is? And I said, I, you know, I don't know. There, I think, are a lot of answers, a lot of reasons for that. I think um, at all times, those of us who've grown up inside uh, our own culture as Americans are, are one narrow step away from understanding Christ's church through the same uh, capitalistic lens that we understand everything else, as simply a service provider that, re- that provides us religious services instead of other kinds, and we attend just enough to say we uh, go there and we give a little bit when it's convenient, and then we receive uh, religious goods and services. And I think there's a portion of people that that was um, their lens, no matter what they would say, that is the way that they understand and relate to the church. And so when COVID hit uh, and they found out, oh, I, you know, I can still give three, four bucks a year and uh, jump in online every once in a while. And, you know, and I kind of get my religious goods and services. Uh, they just decided to stay home and they'll drop in whenever they want to online. I think uh, there were quite a few others, especially in Western contexts, who were never believers to begin with, um, right? Church, it was just a habit uh, in their life. And when it was no longer a habit in their life, there was no longer um, any desire or any intention of gathering with the people of God. What I do know is that when regeneration in a heart happens, when a heart goes from, from being dead to being alive by the power and the glory of Christ and the gospel, um, over time, and quickly this, this begins happening, there is a driving desire to be with, to gather with, to talk with and spend time with other believers, other men and women who are followers of Jesus. Um, but one of the things I said that I, I think contributed a great deal to this that we've been seeing for years is that there's a great amount of disillusionment and discouragement in the lives of many confessing Christians, as well as inconsistency and unfaithfulness in their lives uh, toward Christ himself, toward the body of Christ, that I think is there because we have a tendency to over-individualize and minimize, over-individualize and minimize the purpose and power of the gospel. I want to say that again. I think there's a lot of disillusionment and discouragement in the lives of many confessing Christians. I know that's there because I hear it on a regular basis and have for years and years and years. Well, I don't believe anything else, but this is not what I thought it would be and, um, and so on and so forth. And maybe you've said that I have felt that in the past as well. That results in a kind of unconsistency and faithfulness that I think when we look at it really is deeply rooted in an over-individualized and minimized view of the purpose and the power of the gospel. So last week, Jake talked about the gospel as incarnational, that you and I most often come to faith within a, a, some kind of relational context. There's often the word of God and, and followers of Jesus involved in our redemptive story, our account of how we came to faith in Jesus Christ. That you and I best grow and experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in a relational context as we are relating one to another with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we best, um, we best reflect the image of God and we best live out the mission and ministry that God has called us to in a relational context. That there is a sense in which the good news of Jesus Christ runs along the rails of relational connection. Where Christ is at work, he is always creating a community. Where Christ is redeeming individuals, he is always redeeming them into the gathered people of God. The gospel is incarnational. This morning, we're going to talk about the truth that the gospel is holistic. The gospel is holistic. The chief concern of the gospel is not simply to redeem individual men and women so that they might spend an eternity in the presence of God as the people of God. That's part of it. But when that's all you and I know about the gospel, we have over-individualized it. We've lost the story of God and what God is doing redemptively in human history. And we've minimized the power of the gospel. We think it starts and stops with us And with what happens to us and me after I die. That's only part of it. One, the gospel deals with all of who I am and all of who you are. Not just who you'll be after you die, but everything that you are and hope to be today and everything that you are not. The gospel deals with us as a whole, as the church. The gospel speaks to that. This is what the gospel produces are local reflections of the people of God that bear his image together to a broken and watching world. And the gospel speaks to and deals with society as a whole, the, the broken, torn nature of human structures within human societies. Let's look, at, uh, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll read verses 4 through 12, because I want you to have the context for 9 and 10. 9 and 10 are where we're going to kind of drop anchor and hang around, but I want you to have the wider context of where Peter is going here. First Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Let me pause there. Um, because we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, around these uh, wider context verses. But I want to take a minute here and say, when we talk about this living stone, you'll see the phrase cornerstone here uh, in a minute. This is reaching back to some Old Testament language, to language that Jesus used to refer to himself within a temple context that, that first century Jewish listeners would have understood, um, the cornerstone is that, that foundational stone set by which the rest of a building is built and is built correctly and is built strong. And what's interesting here, commentators um, and scholars note, is that there seems to be two building agendas here. Peter says, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, so what the the non-living, actual, physical, tangible stone, rock, that became the cornerstone for the temple uh, where Uh, Jews understood human beings and God to meet, heaven and earth to come together. Um, as As we're brought to Jesus, the living stone, the flesh and blood place and one by which heaven and earth come together and meet, he says, this stone has been rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. There's a sense in which there are two building agendas going on. There's a human agenda that looks and evaluates everything through a human context and a human lens and what makes sense to human beings. And there is a divine agenda. There's what God's actually doing in the world and how he's doing it. Verse five says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, right? So there's not just individual salvation happening. But as men and women are saved by God's grace, delivered from sin and darkness and death into new light and relationship with God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, which when you take the New Testament uh, seriously and carefully, that's what it means to be saved. It's not, are you saved? But do you have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit lives in you. You've been made right with God. Your heart's been made alive by him. And Peter says, as this happens, you're joined to one another. You're joined together so that all true followers of Christ are inevitably and eternally brought together into a living household, a family, the family of God. And Peter's kind of tracing this stone language from the temple, which they would have been familiar with, to Jesus Christ, then to the people of Jesus, the church, as the living manifestation of the risen Savior on earth now, the people of God as that place, not taking the role of the Savior, but reflecting what God has done through him. We as a body of followers of Christ, being the people by which heaven and earth meet and reflect to the world around us, the glory of God and the goodness of God built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. One of the things that we've looked at and spent some time on in our Elm Institute class, the gospel story, tracing the storyline of scripture is the fact that part of what got um, Israel into exile, got Israel decimated and defeated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, as tools of God's judgment, was their commitment to, ritual, uh, to religious ritualism over true heart change and obedience to God. And Peter's making a specific uh, reference here to, to offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That there's been a change of heart. So you and I are not just religious people doing religious actions, but we're men and women who've been made right with God and out of that right standing and right relationship with God now flows a life whose desires and values are, are being transformed. Does that make sense? The, the transforming of values isn't where it begins. Don't get those out of order. It starts with being made new. It starts with God coming after you and changing you. Then Peter reaches back and pulls up verses from Psalms and Isaiah, and says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, let's pause here. When will those who trust in Christ be put to shame? Never, never. Doesn't matter what culture says, doesn't matter what happens to us physically, Those who place their trust in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. Verse seven. Now, to you who believe, to you who believe. And what Peter is saying here is to you who believe, Jesus was who he said he was. The preordained son of God and savior of the world. Not to those of you who believe there may be a God. Not to those of you who read your Bible not to those of you who simply attend church, but to those of you who believe this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, there's this dualistic view of a human building project and God's building project. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. I struggled with this language, um, early in my life as I was reading it in Scripture. But I can tell you now, after 20-something years of pastoral ministry, I understand uh, viscerally what Peter is saying here, is that Jesus, the name of Jesus, the agenda of God made known through Jesus Christ, doesn't just separate those who believe from those who don't believe, the saved from the lost. It separates friends sometimes. It causes division and struggles in marriages between men and women who, uh, for whatever reason or set of reasons, have found themselves unequally yoked. Is New Testament language for that, uh, which ultimately means a, a, a professing believer in Jesus Christ and a non professing non believer in Jesus Christ bound together in the union of marriage because your values will be different. Does that make sense? Right? Your worldview is different. Your understanding of of money and relationships and the world and politics and races, that's all going to be different. And sometimes, even within a marriage where you've got a sort of on fire follower of Jesus Christ and a somewhat tepid, lukewarm follower of Jesus Christ, there's tension and there's strife. End of verse eight, they stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you, y'all, you guys, it's plural here, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's look back at verses 9 and 10. First of all, there's an immense amount in here. This could be an entire series, just these verses working through what Peter is doing here. And it's very difficult to understand what, uh, at least in its fullness, what Peter is doing if we don't understand the Old Testament. But I just want to look primarily at verses 9 and 10. Let's look back at verse 9. Kind of 9A, B, and C. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. We're gonna pause there for a minute. Peter says, the the result of what God has done in our lives, in your lives, redemptively, is that you are individually and collectively together a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A chosen nation. People, literally a chosen race. Genos is the the Greek word there, the word from which we get our our modern English word, genealogy. Literally a a chosen race. One New Testament scholar said uh, this about this passage here. Peter here makes the radical claim, the radical claim that those who believe in Jesus Christ whether Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, Cappadocian, Bithynian, or whatever, though from many races constitute a new race of those who have been born again into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is consistent with Paul's treatment of Jesus Christ as the new Adam, the second Adam. God is creating through Jesus Christ one people, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of education, regardless of what you do vocationally, or in our current context, don't do vocationally. Jake and I went to a restaurant last week to work through some things and we went in and there was literally uh, a number of signs in there that said, help wanted, cooks, kitchen staff, front end, back end, Phone people, servers, I mean, everything there. It's so crazy. Like after the pandemic, people didn't just not come back to church. They just decided that work wasn't very fun and they weren't going to do it anymore. And that will last until the money runs out, right? When government checks stop coming, people all of a sudden go, you know, work's not so bad. It's not so bad. And I will tell you, and this is for free. Um, there's something intangibly God-ordained intangibly God good about work. You and I are created to work. We're designed to labor and then to enjoy the fruit of our labor. I gotta get back here because I'm gonna get totally wound up on that. But what God is doing is creating a new people on earth. And wherever you travel, you will always, as a follower of Jesus, have far more in common with other followers of Jesus than you do with anybody else. And some of you who've been overseas, you've experienced that. When you meet another Christian, they're actually excited that you're a Christian. They don't assume or expect that you are. And it's a big deal to them. And there's an instant connection. I remember uh, being on vacation in San Francisco some years back with Sharon and her parents. I think it was uh, pre-children it was because my most vivid memory of it was we toured Alcatraz and we were coming out the back of Alcatraz going down, um, kind of to the, the seashore. And any of you who've been to Alcatraz know that the birds rule Alcatraz. They're everywhere. And a bird flew over my mother-in-law and pooped on her hair and shoulder. And it was fantastic. Um, it was awesome. Um, Everybody's trying to clean it and I was taking pictures. Remember the little old uh, disposable cameras you'd buy at the store? You could you know, click, click, turn them in and eventually pictures popped out. Um, so I've, I've, got, I've got visible proof. But I remember looking at San Francisco and even then encountering it as such a bizarre place, such a bizarre culture and thinking, I could not live here. And as we were riding the little trolley thing around, I remember thinking, Yes, I could. Yes, I could, but I would have to find my people. I would have to get here and find a gospel centered church where Jesus is exalted as King. And men and women are seeking to live out the gospel. And then I I would I would have my place. I would have my place. Because what God is doing is carving out for himself a chosen people. It's not just about what he's doing in you individually. As you are saved, made right with God, you are saved into a people, right? He does care about what's going on in you individually. He is redeeming you as an individual sinner who has rebelled against God, who has spit in God's face and said, I don't want your way. I want mine. I want to be my own God. I know what's right and wrong. I want to live my truth. I want to live my best life now and on and on. But he's doing more than that. And you're not just a new people, in a sense, a new race, literally. But you're a chosen one. And this chosen language is very important. Peter opens his letter now. You don't have to look back, but he opens it to God's elect. God's elect. God's chosen. Exiles scattered throughout, speaking to um, Jews and Gentiles throughout the Mediterranean world. We see this again and again. And you hear this in Jesus. Let me just give you a few examples. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me. You did not choose me. No matter what you said or what incantation someone led you in, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. That's John 15, 16. You didn't chose me, I chose you. But he goes further. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You remember the next part here? He says, no one comes to the Father except what? Through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is why you have to do something with Jesus, people, Like, he's either an absolute lunatic, he's insidiously evil, or he is who he said he is. There aren't any other options. When he's going around telling people, the only way for you to get to God, the only way for you to be right before the one who will judge your life is to come through me. I mean, if one of your friends said that this afternoon, like, you would get them help. If, you're, if you went home and your spouse said that, man, maybe you'd put them down for a nap, right? And hope that they woke up in reality. We have to do something with Jesus. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. But here's the thing. He had already said in John chapter six, verse 44, this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. So Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, and no one has the ability to come to me except that the Father draws them. Peter understands this. He says that we are a chosen people. He also says a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, and he's he's reaching back again and pulling back part of that Old Testament reality and language. And there's a sense in which Peter throughout his book traces this kind of line. And he's not specifically talking about just the the priestly category of people in Israel that mediated um, in a sense between God and Israel, spoke to Israel and worked on Israel's, uh, Israel's religious life on behalf of God, but also the calling that Israel had to be a nation of image bearers to the world and continued to fail in. Priests, Israel as a whole, the church. And that's what Peter's saying over and over and over here. The church, a royal priesthood. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means, among other things, that you and I are consistently speaking gospel-centered truth and life to ourselves, one another, and the world around us. You and I are consistently speaking gospel-centered truth and life to ourselves, to one another, and to the watching and broken world around us. We see this so much. If you are a, uh, a consistent reader of the Psalms, you'll notice that sometimes the psalmist is just speaking truth to himself. You and I need that. You and I need that. We need to hear the biblical truth that we're not Sinners were saints who still sin, right? But the Matt Jeffries, who was only a sinner, defined by a sin, headed for an eternity, spent apart from God in hell, was crucified with Christ on the cross through the grace and the mercy of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, and that guy is dead, and there's been new life. And this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. So stop using I'm just a sinner as an excuse to just keep being a sinner. If you're in Christ, you're not, friends. You're a saint who still sins and still struggles. God help us. God help us. Walk with us. Stir up our affections. But we need to speak truth to ourselves. Yesterday, while on campus at Sanford and Birmingham, we were Getting a tour, it was actually one of uh, uh, David and Beth Conley's daughters, their youngest daughter, Ellen, who was, ended up being our tour guide. It was so great, so good at that. Um, another young man who's a sophomore there named Harrison. And so they were taking us around campus during this preview day. It was also homecoming, so the whole campus was a madhouse. But we were walking and I'm looking all around at everything and talking. Um, One of uh, JC's friends, our daughter's friend, uh, who she was good friends with in Texas was also looking at Sanford. So they had done that thing where teenage girls line up the entire orbit of the universe so that they're there at the same day on the same time in the same orientation group or preview group. So we're walking, I'm walking with her mom and we're talking Uh, and I turn and there's this magnolia tree that's like 67 miles tall. I mean, you got a four-story dorm, and it was taller than the dorm. No exaggeration. May may not have been 67 miles tall, but it was taller than the dorm. And so we're walking, and man, I'm walking along still alive. And I said, man, look at the size of that. Boom. And then I just planted into the ground. Um, What I didn't notice was that right between us as we were walking was a fire hydrant. And it had about five inches of of ground just missing around it. I don't know what was there, but my boot went directly into that five inches and I just went from still alive and talking about the magnolia tree to going, where's the ground? And it just, it wasn't there. And my foot just went down and I just went straight down to the ground. It was one of those things that it, it wasn't out of control, but it was a lengthy fall. It was like a 30 minute slow controlled plant into the wet grass in front of our body. Um, I got up and said, man, I didn't see that happening. And, and, and of course, uh, the mom's in she She's like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Can I say, ladies, that until we get to the age where you have to check on us regularly, that's not what men want. We want you to laugh. That's what you do when a man falls, you laugh. I would have laughed at any of them if they had fallen, including Jenny. But I got up and I said, I hope enough of you saw this to laugh because it had to be funny. And then everybody laughed. But I could say about myself, I'm a loser who can't walk, right? Or I could say I'm a guy who normally doesn't fall down, but happened to that day in magnificent fashion in front of a lot of people, All right? What what you say to yourself matters. What you say to yourself matters. Speak gospel-centered truth in life to yourself and to one another. Uh, I printed off just a, a quick list of the 54 one another's that we find throughout the New Testament. I won't read them all, but let me read a few. This is, this is part of what the gospel does as it comes into our life. This is why you really can't be a Christian by yourself, right? Because the New Testament is filled with commands that can only be lived out in community with other followers of Christ. Love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, instruct one another, serve one another, submit to one another, encourage one another. We are a royal priesthood speaking gospel-centered truth and life to ourselves and to one another, and to one another. We are endlessly, eternally joined together in the redemption of Christ. And we speak gospel-centered truth and life to the world around us. the world around us, because as Peter goes on and says in the next phrase, we are not just a royal priesthood or a chosen people, we're a holy nation, a holy nation. We are a unique and distinctive group of people set apart in whatever earthly society we find ourselves in, being first and foremost governed by the truth of the gospel and God's written word that brings life and makes crooked ways straight that reconciles broken relationships and marriages, that heals where there have been wounds, that produces freedom where we've been tied down. We are a holy nation. A holy nation. Karen Jobes, is she's retired now. I think she retired in 2015, 2016, but she was a a, a New Testament and Greek scholar at Wheaton College and at Westminster Theological Seminary before then. But in her commentary on 1 Peter, she she says this, that under the modern ideology that separates church and state, it is perhaps easier today to separate what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. You remember, that was Jesus' only overt, direct political statement, was don't get so worked up, just give Caesar what is his, and give God what is his but that was an overtly political statement because it was saying in the Roman Empire that not everything belongs to Caesar, which was a subversive statement, a subversive statement. She says, perhaps in our modern area of of separation of church and state, it's easier today to separate what belongs to Caesar from what belongs to God. But to the extent that government formulates policy bearing on moral and ethical issues. And she just gives us examples. Abortion, war, the right of religious faith in the public forum. Christians still have to face the problems raised by holding a dual citizenship in the country of their residence and in the holy nation of God. We are a different people, friends. And if we are living that out, if we're living a primary citizenship in the nation of God, the kingdom of God, and secondary citizenship, citizenship, whatever nation we find ourselves residing in on earth. It's going to, at times, create friction. It's going, at times, to create friction. But part of what it means to be a chosen people, set apart by God for God, a royal priesthood that, in a sense, reflects and mediates to the world around us, to ourselves, to one another, and the world around us, the glory of God for the good of his world. Part of what that means is we're going to come into conflict sometimes with the world around us. It also means we have a calling to accurately reflect that to the world around us and not simply mirror the world. I listened to a, um, I listened to a podcast yesterday. Um, Russell Moore, some of you will, will know, is the former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, He's a phenomenal thinker, has a pastor's heart, uh, great theologian, just um, he's been a real light through the last four or five or six years of cultural chaos and craziness, both in in our society and in the church. But he's got a uh, podcast I would highly recommend you just simply call The Russell Moore Show now. But he was interviewing Philip Yancey. Any of you ever read a Philip Yancey book? Anybody out there? Yeah, yeah. So Philip Yancey is a Christian thinker and and author. He has a journalism background but he's a kid who grew up in the Bible, grew up in Atlanta, actually. And his books are a reflection of growing up in a deeply, deeply fundamentalist and hyper-conservative um, church and background with parents that same way. And uh, his dad passed away early and his mom just became more fundamental and more conservative. Um, and sort of the damage that that did to he and his brother. and And in a sense, he's just very honest about his journey as a follower of Jesus in life, trying to um, come back to, to love and live in the context of and understand uh, the local church as, as God's purpose and plan on earth, which he, he has done. But he's re- you, see, you hear some of his stuff in the titles of his books. Where Light Fell is just a memoir. That's what Moore is interviewing Yancey about. But The Jesus I Never Knew is a, a fantastic book. What's So Amazing About Grace? Where is God When It Hurts? Uh, the Bible Jesus read, which I would recommend to, to anybody as a great street-level introduction to the Old Testament. Yancey handles the Old Testament very, very well in there. But in this discussion, Yancey talks about his struggle early on to reconcile some of what he saw with the gospel that he was, that he was hearing. And he talks about being raised in Atlanta, where he, he now lives, still lives, raised in Atlanta in the 60s. He said, and in the 60s, uh, racism and segregation was still, it was still legal, right? It was the way of the land. He saw that, he grew up in it, but he said that the independent Baptist church he grew up in just simply mirrored and followed the culture. Didn't speak gospel truth and life into the culture. We weren't a counterculture for the common good. We just reflected what was going on around us. And he said, um, every Sunday there were a group of deacons, and this is his words, not mine. I'm sure the deacons and the pastor uh, and pastors were working uh, in tandem here. Uh, but the deacons were the enforcement arm of what was going on in the church. But there were a group of deacons that would stand outside and greet people and make sure that they did not allow any, any black people wanting to come into church, into the church. And Yancey actually has a photocopy of the little cards they would give, um, rejection cards, uh, in the book uh, to all black people coming and maybe anybody else that they just didn't like uh, but basically saying, hey, uh, we, we know you and believe you to be troublemakers, insincere, not true believers. Therefore, you are not welcomed into our fellowship. And so Yancey said, I grew up year after year watching this happen. And he said, eventually, as the 60s went, they began to soften a little bit and they started allowing some to attend, especially some of those uh, from Carver Bible College, which was African-American Bible College, really close to the church there. And he said, then at one point, one gifted young man from Carver Bible College college, young black man, wanted to become a member. He said, the deacons had a big meeting where um, it was uh, hot and contentious, but at the end, they unanimously decided, no, he could not become a member, pounded the gavel, and that was it. That young man obviously left the church, um, but his name was Tony Evans. His, his name was Tony Evans. Uh, he not only loves the Lord and is an amazingly influential man of God today, but his kids love the Lord a daughter has a massive teaching ministry that is um, just exceptional. A uh, son actually uh, works as uh, one of the talent scouts and, and producers for The Voice. And I, Yancey's struggle there was that instead of being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, instead of being a, a holy nation set apart reflecting um, God's glory and His goodness, that existed to declare the praises of the one who'd called them out of darkness and into light, they simply reflected the darkness around him. They over-individualized and minimized the purpose and power of the gospel so that it was about them and their individual salvation, and that's it. But God has called us to so much more. God has called us to bring gospel truth into our hearts, our own hearts, day in and day out. He's called us to encourage one another and love one another and accept one another. As the band makes their way out here on stage and begins to to get set up, I want our only response to this calling as a church to be, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. We're not afraid of a chaotic, crazy culture around us, right? We believe in the sovereign, providential power of God, that nothing is out of control in his world. And we're not going to shrink back and wither. We're not going to have this view of the gospel that just says, well, eventually eventually, after I die, I'm going to be okay. We're going to carry the light out into the culture around us. We're going to love because we have the power to love in ways that the world can't. We're going to forgive. We're going to build one another up and let the world watch and go, I don't know what's happening, but I want some of what they have. That is what for the first three or four or five centuries in the Roman pagan world turned that world upside down. They could not understand the radical generosity, the sexual sexual ethics, the love, the servant heartedness of the early church. But it created by, by God's design a curiosity in them that caused the church to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, even as the very empire that was working so hard to stamp it out declined and declined and declined and eventually crumbled. I hope that you and I will have a holistic view of the gospel that's much larger and much wider than many of us were taught growing up and many of us have come to believe because it will in time bring new power a new presence into our lives. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.